Welcome back. It's Hit Factory. Just Aaron on this side of the mic today. Uh, but we have a very special guest joining us uh, for this episode. Freelance critic, essayist, film historian, Nora McIntyre is here on the show. Nora, thank you for being here. Hi, Aaron. Thank you for having me. It's an honor to be here on Hit Factory Podcast talking movies and film and all things wonderful about 90s hits, which I don't know if I'm supposed to reveal the movie or... You can if you'd like to. Today, we're going to be talking about Serial Mom by John Waters. That's right. Serial Mom, John Waters, 1994, the release here, uh, starring the inimitable Kathleen Turner, Sam Waterston, Ricky Lake, Matthew Lillard here as well. This is pre-Hackers and pre-Scream Matthew Lillard. I think this is the earliest Matthew Lillard role I've seen. Yeah, it's before he really, um, you know, hit his stride in Hollywood. Yeah, although here he is, uh, maybe for the first time, but not the last, playing a uh, horror movie-obsessed teenager. So, <laughs> you know. Good foundation. Exactly, yeah. Uh, so I'm always curious at the start of every episode... Nora, what your history is with Serial Mom when you came to it, uh, how your feelings with it have evolved? Oh, wow. So, yeah, that's a great question. Um, I actually am embarrassed to say I saw it for the first time fairly recently. It was about a year ago. Um, I had, you know, I'm always perusing for DVDs and Blu-rays at Goodwill. And, you know, living in L.A., we just have a, a bounty of them. It's very fortunate. And, you know, I sort of skimmed John Waters' um, filmography on the periphery. I hadn't really dived into it. A lot of my friends were saying, oh, it's better if you, you know, start with this later stuff. It's going to be a little easier to, you know, get into. And I'm like, okay, mm -hmm. cool. Um, I had heard from multiple friends of mine who were also involved with film. They're critics and writers and designers um, to watch Serial Mom. And I was like, okay. So I popped in the DVD and I... It was love at first sight. Um, I <laughs> couldn't believe what I was watching. I couldn't, I felt like, I mean, this movie actually came out a year before I was born, but it felt like somehow John Waters engineered this movie for me with the humor, just all the imagery, the symbols and the satire, the way he just completely maligned suburbia and personally having grown up in um, a very suburban uh, Massachusetts town, you just, it just was so resonant and just so funny. Yeah, I, I too grew up in uh, a little kind of carve out of classic American suburbia, myself in the Midwest. Oh, the Midwest. I know. Uh, it's it's very white bread. Uh, it's not Baltimore, <laughs> uh, John Waters, native Baltimore. But uh, I, I get the sense that all of those existences are uh, equally milquetoast and, and very similar in their construction. So, Nora, tell me a little bit about... Uh, John Waters for you as well. You, this was your first John Waters film that you saw, you said? I believe it was my first. Somehow I had not seen Hairspray. I'd seen the remake um, with uh, Nikki Blonsky back in the theaters mm -hmm. when it came out. But um, it was my first John Waters film. Um, and it was just immediately, you know, upon its conclusion, I was like, I have to, I have to rewatch this. Because I know, I feel like, I don't know about you, but there are certain films where, you know, I'll watch it and it's good, but I'm like, okay, I'll wait a little bit before I want to revisit that. Or it's good, you know, I only need to watch it once. I was like, no, there's infinite rewatch value. 
in this film. Um, there's just there's so many little details to absorb and it really they really come and jump out at you with each rewatch. And I think since I first saw it, I have watched it like five or six times. So Oh wow. I mean I love also being the friend to introduce, you know, my non film friends to movies, as I'm sure you can relate. So every time I have a friend of mine who's not so much in the film sphere, I'm like, I think you're going to like this. Sit them down. And sure enough, it's a hit every time. <laughs> yeah, it's, it certainly seems like one of the most palatable of, of John Waters films. He himself, I think, even uh, in an interview claimed uh, that it, it he considers it his best movie. Um, and the one where he was operating kind of at the peak of his power, uh, both creatively, but also commercially. Uh, he even says... Uh, it was the end of my Hollywood career, and then I went back to independent films. I sort of climbed up, then slipped back down. And I think that's an interesting way to see uh, John Waters' arc over his career, because he uh, he certainly started in a different place. I'll, I'll be the first to admit, I am very, very ignorant of John Waters' uh, career and filmography. I know him as a public figure and as sort of an artist just you know, in the spotlight and, and broadly more so than I do from any of his actual creative output. Uh, in preparation for this, I watched a little bit of Multiple Maniacs and Pink Flamingos, uh, but but I did not watch the entire film uh, of either of those. I apologize, listeners. I know that that's verboten. I know that that's gauche, <laughs> uh, but just enough to kind of get a taste of it and uh, and to kind of understand sort of the, I guess we can call it exploitation roots yes. of John Waters. Yes, absolutely. And I think that is in integral, obviously, understanding his later work and Serial Mom especially. And, you know, to be honest, I haven't seen all of his movies either. Um, there's def I actually haven't seen Pink Flamingos. That's like the big one I'm missing. I've seen Female Trouble. I've seen Multiple Maniacs. I've seen Polyester. But yeah, he is this iconoclast. And it's that he is trying to capitalize on the shock value in terms of entertainment but also as a means of commentating because i feel you know although he will you know be capitalizing on the extremes like the very very gross lewd whatever stuff in his early works i mean how is it that much different from a lot of the things that people in a day-to-day -day life do you know we're all exploited through capitalism and consumerism and just it's drawing a very broad obviously comparison but i think especially when he got into like the, you know, the mainstream studio era, he toned it down a bit. And I think, like you said, and like he said, that Serial Mom is his best work because it hits that sweet spot where it's like not so um, far out there where people just find it completely inaccessible or just really have trouble getting past like the shock value of it. But it's still, it's like accessible enough where people can relate to it and see what he's getting at. And I think a lot of that in, in turn is thanks to Kathleen Turner, who just one of the, and I, I love body heat. That's no secret, but I don't know. <laughs> Serial mom is close competition for her finest hour in my, in my opinion, because she is just tapped in, locked into the satire the entire time. And it's just, it's just a delight to watch. I mean, I crack up just watching like her expressions, let alone the dialogue. Yeah, I, I mean, there is a version of this movie in which that central performance of uh, Beverly is very overheated, right? Especially because John Waters here is 
uh, he's not a subtle filmmaker uh, in no. any sense of the word. Uh, and, and the satire he's delivering to us here and kind of meeting out uh, is, you know, being done with a sledgehammer kind of force. It is it is not uh, for us to miss. It is very much for us to consume and to, to read immediately. It's it's a very sort of like hypodermic injection of the kind of themes that he's dealing with here and talking about. Uh, and Kathleen Turner is somehow able to both deliver on the absurdity and the kind of bizarreness, the sort of psychopathic nature of the character, especially in those murder <laughs> scenes. Uh, but there is something that she's doing that is playing other moments of this very close to the t- to the chest. She's like, uh, she's able to turn on a dime in, in this in this movie, and I I just I love her. I think that she's doing such phenomenal work. She she truly is. I mean, I couldn't have put it better. Like the the hypodermic needle. It's very true because you're right. It's not a subtle movie, but he she does kind of straddle both those dynamics, and it's like she's matching him pace by pace for every action it's like she completely understands and she does have that ability to turn on a dime but what's you know the funniest thing of all is <laughs> you know it's and again it's a microcosmic sort of allegory for the way we behave in societies namely american society how she gets all up in arms about you know chewing gum and scotty not wearing his seatbelt, but thinks nothing doesn't think twice about anything of a more greater grotesque nature and in fact when it starts to earn her fame we'll gladly capitalize on that (laughs) it's just bonkers it's brilliant it's so brilliant life doesn't have to be ugly look at the birds out there listen to their call this is the story of beverly sutphin scramble eggs anybody a devoted mother i'm so happy i could chip you know how i hate the brown word a loving wife. You think the kids are awake? We could be very quiet. I'm ready. Honey, you're hot tonight. And a suspected murderer. Oh, kids, are you doing your homework? How did America's number one mom turn into one of America's most wanted? Is she really guilty? Are you a serial killer? Chip, the only serial I know anything about is Rice Krispies. Is she the only one with a motive? Believe that damn litter bugger. Give her a happy face. Or is there someone else? I'm stood up. I'll kill that jerk. With an axe to grind. Oh. You'll never get a boyfriend. Meanwhile, this small Baltimore suburb Please. keeps getting smaller ah. and smaller. It's been a crazy day, hasn't it? Savoy Pictures asks the burning question, Is your wife mental? Is Beverly Sutphin just a sweet suburban housewife? Well, I don't know what it is about today, but I feel great. Cookie? Or is she... Serial Mom? Cool. Is she in a band? Kathleen Turner. Sam Waterston and Ricky Lake. Serial Mom. Uh, this film is also, in a, a lot of ways, John Waters' greatest sort of love letter to one of his idols, Herschel Gordon Lewis, who is sort of like a splatter king of the 60s and 70s. Uh, and the movie starts right away, in fact, with uh, with Matthew Lillard's horror movie, Obsessed Teenage Son, uh, talking about and and scribbling kind of doodles in his notebook 
celebrating one of one of Lewis's uh, most famous films, Blood Feast, uh, which they're also watching at a key point in the movie. Uh, when Kathleen Turner comes in to eat cookies with her son and enjoy a couple of like sheep stomachs and and things like that being pulled out of people. <laughs> That's interesting. So I wasn't actually I'm not familiar with um, his filmography, but now I you mention it that makes a lot of sense, um, especially with the splatter and the gore and obviously the theme of the horror movies. The illusion, which I always pick up on, just because of my background, is obviously Straightjacket with Joan Crawford, and mm-hmm. they're watching that at one point. So I think yeah, I mean John Waters really sort of uh, resurrects that over-the-top camp energy that really was so stylized in these sort of early horror slashers and thrillers, but does it in a way that, I don't know, at least to me, it doesn't feel cheap. No, I don't think it does at all. I mean, there's certainly kind of a a pastiche sort of element to it, absolutely. But uh, I have been very verbal in the past on this show and online about my frustration with discourse around the concept of camp. Oh, okay, yeah. I, I think that a lot of things uh, with camp have sort of evolved into a way in which to ironically detach and still enjoy a thing. I think that we are very quick to kind of dole out the label of camp onto things that people want to enjoy, uh, but do so reservedly because they find criticisms about it valid. I, I don't think that that's the case with John Waters stuff here. I think that he, I don't think he's kind of operating in that area of uh, making something deliberately kind of like so bad it's good. I think. Oh, he's, no, he's, definitely not. He's more aligned with kind of the classic kind of camp idea. And, and specifically, as you mentioned, sort of the way that camp can kind of be imbued with a sense of horror in that it's it's really more about that that I think most definitive element of the definition which is bad taste it is uh (laughs) in every way just sort of you know it's it's a little revolting it is uh to common sensibilities abhorrent it's upsetting (laughs) it's challenging and that to me is a thing about waters and the way that he kind of operates that i feel makes him uh a pretty singular kind of entity within this camp adjacent sort of uh cohort no, I mean, that's very fair. And I, I would agree that a lot of people tend to fling camp around pretty needlessly and reduce its value. But I, I do like that specification. Yeah, it is it is very much bad taste. And it's definitely, you know, I mean, maybe, I, I, you know, it's safe to say he draws inspiration from things that we would label as camp. But obviously, mm-hmm. he uses and weaponizes it in a way that is decidedly not. It's very intentional. It's very... You know, it's it's just so it's so biting, it's so controversial, it's so it's just, and it's you know it's amazing um, because you think about him doing this, you know, in the seventies and the eighties, and you know now, I mean, looking at the climate we live in now, it's it's very interesting. I would be very interested to see how if you know if John Waters did return return to filmmaking, um, what a lot of audience responses would be. Yeah, well, he's teased his return to filmmaking, I think, a couple of times now. And in fact, I think just uh, last year or, or earlier this year announced that he is is currently working on a new project. But it'll be his first in, gosh, how long now? Like almost 15 years, I want to say. Yeah, I think. And, you know, correct me if I'm mistaken. I want to say his last film he made was A Dirty Shame, right? Is that? 
Yes, I, th- I think that's the one. The one with Selma Blair, Johnny Knoxville. And, yes. And the yeah. Like, yeah. And yeah, I actually think that one now is is coming up on closer to like 20 years removed. That was Which like 2004, kind of crazy. Wasn't it? it is. It's nuts. But I, it also kind of feels like we're in, as you said, kind of like this climate today is not one I think that is going to be as receptive to John Waters, one that it might be difficult to make a movie in and for it to really find purchase. Like I'm sure that he has his his acolytes out there us among them yes of course (laughs) but you do kind of wonder you know what what uh someone like john waters what his sensibilities how those would play in today's kind of film environment you know it 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 doesn't seem like a like a ground particularly rich for uh for him and his ilk right and i also think you know that couple that with the you know the greater um endemic we're having with the Marvel blockbuster stronghold and just the kind of the dearth and the decline of, you know, cinematic innovation, at least coming from the U.S. Um, I think it is unfortunate because, you know, as as we've all seen on Twitter.com, you know, this course is kind of futile. They, the second anyone tries to open up a critique or discussion is just, it's just all back and forth. Nobody ever really wants to take a step back and, you know, kind of consider what it is that we're consuming on our screens and what is being brought to theaters. And that's, you know, to me, it's, it's a shame because someone like John Waters, you know, though maybe mired in controversy and, you know, bad taste, ultimately has very important and resounding things to say about all of us and our structure and our psychology as human beings. And I think those are the important discussions we need to be having in you know cinematically and also just post you know film discussions i mean i was kind of thinking about this earlier today where obviously um cinema is kind of founded on escapism and you know that's great and it's inherent to its origins but Mm -hmm. i don't always think that we should be clinging to the escape i think it should also you know we've evolved and since you know its inception we've gone so far in a point where i think you know we have the tools and we have the means to use as a conduit through which to kind of proliferate more important messages in in an abstract way that maybe might not resonate with somebody if you were to just read it in a book or look at an image. I mean, it's kind of the espousement of those two things plus the sound dynamic. And it's just, it's a three-dimensional experience. And I think that's the beauty of it. And that's why I feel extremely lucky, at least, you know, to be alive in the same lifetime as John Waters, who is creating movies like this that I can still watch and enjoy. I mean, anyone can watch Serial Mom and find it amusing, but Mm -hmm. there's more to cull underneath. There's depth there and there's intention. Well said, and I completely agree. (laughs) We will talk a bit about that, that depth and intention in just a moment. But, but to your point, I also just kind of think about the ways in which Waters provokes and challenges, and he doesn't let anyone off the hook. Uh, this movie obviously uh, takes shots at, especially in in the '90s, uh, what is a very easy target. You know, this kind of uh, classic mid-century, prototypical, conformist white American existence. But he lets no one off the hook in the second part of the film as well. You know, he he points uh, his camera and, and he points his finger directly at uh, a lot of other things that we are still. Uh, debating and critiquing uh, in terms of our our mass consumption. One of those things being the kind of proliferation of true crime 
now, not yes. just, you know, like in, in the news, but also uh, podcast and television series and, you know, mockumentaries and all, all sorts of things. You know, it's, it's a genre that is uh, just massive. You know, there's this sort of like cottage industry of people who are so fixated on the commercialization of these really horrendous and like terrifying acts of of cruelty and violence and he certainly subjects us to an interrogation of why we find those things fascinating and and what we're doing there um liberal hypocrisy is also put up on on the board you know for for him to take shots at there is a lot going on in this movie uh and i think that our ability to discern critique within movies without personalizing it yes, in our current era absolutely. is also very uh is at a, a low point you know it, it, there's just these constant you know kind of discourse cycles about uh, this this idea of the characters on a screen or the thing that's being represented being like this deeply personal kind of thing we have to either identify with them or sympathize with them or they have to share our moral perspectives in order for this thing to be good and waters is never concerned with that he he's he's literally you know showing us this this very glamorous very like beautiful movie star who is murdering people for the most minor of social offenses um, and <laughs> and that kind of thing will always i think in in today yield some very uh kind of bizarre and very muddled criticisms because people don't know how to sort of separate and discern for themselves the the satire or the critique happening from their own kind of internalization of of what they're watching and participation in what the characters are doing. I couldn't have put that any better. I mean, that's right on the money right there. And I do think that is a kind of ongoing problem. We see a lot of, you know, current, you know, engagement with with film in terms of general audiences. I do think that there is this tendency to immediately, like you said, try to identify with someone or just see yourself in somebody and immediately almost make this self-centered, whether it be intentional or not, connection and think, oh, this is about me rather than thinking, oh, this is, you know, critiquing, you know, rather a vague notion or stereotype or idea or a bigger whole that maybe I belong to, but I am my own, you know, individual being. And I think that's a very, I think that's a very valid thing to bring up. And I was also thinking, you know, going jumping back to what you were saying about, you know, the uh, commercialization and the fetishization of true crime, which it was in very many ways so present with, um, I think, a big part of that challenge about, you know, John Waters not identifying with the whole making a super, you know, likable, relatable protagonist. But he does but the, the genius stroke to it, in my opinion, is how charismatic Kathleen Turner makes Beverly Sutton. Yes. And it kind of, like you said, creates this inner dilemma where it's like the viewer knows that she's nuts. You know, she's deranged. She's doing these way out of pocket things, overreacting. And yet there's just something about her sunny demeanor, the way she's breaking out to daybreak. She's driving. She's waving. She's coming in, checking on the kids with the cookies, like you said, bringing fruitcake to the parent-teacher conference, <laughs> like, which is very on the nose. Gotta love that. It's just, in the way, you know, the, the delivery of Kathleen Turner and just, it's so, it's, I mean, it's, you're right. It's very hard because, and I think in doing that, he intentionally really does kind of key in on that moral dilemma of like, oh, you know, like it kind of makes us conscious of like, okay, well, 
you're right. Like he doesn't let anyone get away with anything, which I think is important to circle back to. And you bring up, of course, just the the sheer charisma and and magnetism of Beverly Sutphin here, uh, Kathleen Turner's character. And I think we should start there and and just. I mean, where else can you start, really, besides yeah, with right. this character? She's on screen for basically the entire film, uh, save for like she a handful of instances. Mom. She is the serial mom, right? <laughs> uh, which is, in and of itself, a fantastic title, right? Because it is, you know, the the name that is ascribed to her when she becomes, uh, you know, suspect number one in this string of murders in suburban Baltimore. Uh, but there's always also a serial kind of quality a serialized quality i suppose to like the mannerisms that she uh acts out the way that she kind of exists as a mother figure right like this is a very uh traditional very capitalist patriarchal idea of what motherhood looks like in 90s america and yeah i i I just couldn't get out of my head from from minute one you know that there is uh there's a familiarity here because of our own socialization and internalization of these ideals, uh, but how it's its own sort of unique brand of sociopathy. <laughs> you know, it, yeah. it is a performance in and of itself that that this thing that she's doing uh, is as much uh, sort of a cloak as you know the the murders that she's committing. Morning, officers. Good morning, Mrs. Sutphin. Mrs. Sutphin, I presume you know about the death of Mr. Stubbins. Oh, yes. Yes, a fine man. A good teacher. Contusions, fractures, rupture of numerous vital organs. What a mess. Oh, no, 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 honey, that's Scotty. Scotty, who doesn't wear his seatbelt. Good morning, detectives. Nightmare on Calverton courts. The Maryland teacher massacre. <laughs> it's not funny, son. Did you drive your car to the PTA meeting yesterday, Mrs. Sutton? Yes, I did. Detectives, what is this all about? I know this sounds weird, Mr. Sutton, but the Department of Motor Vehicles computer shows only one blue station wagon registered to a parent of any of Mr. Stubbins' pupils. Surely you don't think that Beverly was involved in this? She did it. Name the car right at Mr. Stubbins and mowed him down. <laughs> Shut up, Scotty. Well, as I understand it, the only eyewitness was a drug user. I got somebody who could run over mother. <laughs> Misty, that's a terrible thing to say. Detectives, it's time for you to leave. My wife knows nothing about this terrible accident. Murder, honey. When we talk about the gum... Because that's a detail. Um, I'm going to make a quick pivot here. Yeah, that's let's a detail talk about the gum. That, that I've noticed um, on like my second viewing is obviously um, after the infamous parent-teacher conference where we see Chips um, scribbling, you know, these horror like I guess you will homages in his notebook, and the math teachers like, you know, I'm very concerned for your son. I mean, Kathleen Turn doesn't like that already because you know that's a reflection on her. And she's she has, like you said, she's this kind of uh, caricature of the mom. So she's overprotective. And, you know, she's like, OK. And so, you know, she gets out. She's in her car. And I think this is such a just impeccable part on Turner's end where you see her kind of wave at the teacher. And 
you know, you're not sure. Nothing has actually transpired in terms of the murders. You're like, ooh, will she? And John Waters kind of keeps you guessing because there's no definitive, like, look in her eye yet. But then the math teacher on his way out takes out a, a stick of gum. And that is actually the, um, the catalyst where she's like, you know what? Screw it. I'm going to run this motherfucker over. <laughs> and that, again, ties back so nicely to the very, like, first scene um, with the officers coming in. And she's like, sorry, officers, we don't allow gum in this household. And I just, the minute attention to detail there is so brilliant. It just, because, you know, what's who's to say? Like, what if um, the teacher there didn't chew his stick of gum? Maybe Beverly Sutton's killing spree never would have started off or maybe it would have started at a much different um jumping off point but it's just every time and i think the first time i watched it um at the end when he's when his body is dead and run over i was like what is that out of his mouth is that brain no it's the gum it's the gum right bloody and, gum. <laughs> and squished into the pavement right there next to it yeah yep yeah, it's, I mean, it's funny that you you consider that as like, oh, you know, like the kind of what if, the sort of like impetus by which, you know, she's driven off the edge and, and past the point of just making kind of crank phone calls and harassing a, a divorced neighbor and into, you know, actual full on murder. And she even kind of tries to justify it that way uh, when she's defending herself in the trial sequences at the end of the movie. Oh, my she, God. <laughs> she points out to uh, Beverly, uh, not Beverly, sorry, uh, her, her neighbor. Uh, what's her neighbor's Dottie name? Dottie Hinkle. No, Dottie is the one she's harassing, but the other woman whose name now is Rosemary. Me. Rosemary, thank you. Mrs. They're all, Puff. <laughs> yes, they're all Y names, right? <laughs> uh, but she tells Rosemary, right? Like, you brought me the scissors. You bought the fire poker. Yes. Like, I, I didn't do this. Like, you're the you're the reason I did all of this because you gave me the tools to do it. Um, <laughs> it's it's just very really clever and manipulative and also too yeah the, the the letters from the magazines were cutouts from rosemary's magazines because remember rosemary doesn't recycle which is another grievance of beverly's and yes another favorite scene i mean the whole again the whole movie is a masterpiece but i particularly love you know she has this great rapport with the recycling guys she comes out and you know she gives them a little nip which you know I've seen plenty of suburban moms, you know, kind of strike up rapports with just like their workers, just like, oh, hey there, you bring the mail. Like, you know, they're friendly and they're on a talking basis. (laughs) And the guys are clearly just as annoyed because that's their job. And they go, somebody should kill her. And Kathleen Tyron is just like, you know, she's just making that smug expression. But it's interesting because Rosemary never is targeted. Yeah, you would think that she would be like the the principal uh, kind of object of Beverly's scorn, but but no, she's right. not. She she survives. So does Dottie actually too. Dottie does survive. You're right. And I mean, the thing that you're kind of pointing to, which I, I think is also one of the kind of uh, you know key elements of Beverly's character in the way that Waters paints her here, is uh, this sense of normalcy that she's imbued with, but the way in which she projects that outward to all of these different relationships she has around her, right? Like this sort of social performance is a thing that also absolves her from any sort of suspicion uh, or or presumption of complicity uh, from people who should very obviously know that this is her doing these things until it's too late. 
Uh, she does it with the with the garbage men, which actually is, I think, my favorite scene in the movie when they're just like, she cost the taxpayers millions of dollars last year, but she doesn't care. She does it with them. She does it with the cops, right? You know, like, oh, we don't, oh we don't God, allow gum yeah. here. You know, she's very schmoozy with them. Uh, and it's just it's just fascinating the way that you see her upholding these conventions, upholding this performance in every facet of her life and, and the ways in which we as audience members and, and of course, other people within these sort of institutions that are meant to provide us with this presumption of relative safety and comfort uh, also never suspect that there's any, they, they never think that this person could possibly be bad, right? Because she's friendly, because she is normal, uh, you know, in, in the biggest quotes I can make. Yeah, normal, right, exactly. I wish we had a visual for that. She's fading this idea of normalcy, but, you know, who's to say what's normal? But I just think, yeah, it's this inherent charisma, and I feel like Waters, you know, foreshadows the courtroom scene in many instances by displaying these moments in which she uses that, you know, right after the teacher gets run down. They're like, oh, no, Mom, that's like your car. And she's like, oh, Chip, I'm not that bad of a driver. It's like she somehow, like, I can't think of the word. She minimalizes it, you Mm -hmm. know, as if, oh, it's nothing. You know, she doesn't, there's never, she never has any fear about getting caught or anything. She's just going about her day. And maybe that's her idea of normalcy. And then another scene, too, I love is um, when she is um, comes over and it's Dottie and Rosemary and Rosemary turns around and she breaks the Fabergé egg and <laughs> Dottie doesn't even have a chance to speak. Beverly's like, oh, Dottie, you're so clumsy. Why don't you wait here? We're going to go to the flea market and get another one. Rosemary doesn't question her for a second. In fact, she immediately takes her side. So it's just you have this 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 sense this cunning that's just so but it, I almost wonder it's like you know is she aware of that hmm. and I feel like Waters leaves that pretty ambiguous Yeah and I think that that's a testament to to Turner's performance too that we never really yes. know how much of it is her putting on airs because she's, you know, hyper aware of this, you know, lately I I did kind of accuse her of sociopathy earlier, but you do kind of have to question that, right? Like how much of this is just kind of dumb luck and part of like a performance that she's already so sort of inured to that she doesn't know any other way to behave and how much of it is actually like her uh, architecting those moments of of activity and behavior specifically to avoid the circumstances of of any of her behaviors right it's just it's so it's so fascinating and then another thing that just popped into my head you know convention of this you know this um traditional family dynamic you know she is the stay-at-home mom but she very much so emasculates sam waterston in almost every scene they share Yes, he's it's very it's very interesting. And again, like I think you said a testament to her performance. It's hard to tell whether she's doing that intentionally or if it's just like a sort of, you know, a, an inherent like kind of instinct for her to just take the reins. Um, and I think that's very fascinating. And I think it's also fascinating that. You know, I mean, the way when 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 it becomes pretty obvious to most of the people in the film that she is the perpetrator, 
it's just a matter of getting her right like you know when they're going to a church and the police like train is like behind them <laughs> um i think it's very interesting you know and very telling on water's part to consider the different yet specific reactions of everybody in her family mm-hmm. waterston saying true to his part is the enabler he could you know he could he could go to the police and help but he just feels like, all right, like, you know, he just won't overstep her. We have Chip, obviously, the horror buff who thinks it's super cool and chill and like, yes. <laughs> let's capitalize it on it. And then there's, um, I forget the name of the daughter. I know it's uh, Ricky Lake, but I can't remember her name. I can't remember her name either, but uh, but Ricky Lake, I think, is sufficient for our purposes. Yeah, she is right. very much Ricky Lake here. She is. And her thing is so interesting because she goes from, oh, mom, now I'll never get a boyfriend because of all the notoriety to, oh, wait, well, there's cameras. I'm going to get attention. So you see, like, you know, the attention starved adolescent girl, the like all these, you know, like these like caricatures that are so hyper specific. And it's like, in a way, it's like either they're too self-involved or they're too cowardly to do anything to inhibit Beverly, who is just at this point, she's on a spree. Right. Yeah. And I mean, they all find different ways that it benefits them. But Sam Watterson's character, you're right, is the one that I think is the most fascinating because he's always sort of, uh, I, I mean, for a lack of a better term here, he's a he's a cuck in this movie, right? Yeah. Like he's yes, he's he... kind of getting cucked the entire movie. Uh, and he's always like, Oh, your mom is just, she's sick. We, we need to get her the help she needs. You know, he's, he's trying to find ways to navigate around, uh, accepting who she is and, and the brutality that she's capable of. I think largely because at the beginning of this movie, as we we see, he is very quick to dole out the, uh, sort of insistence that there's a, a, a guy who, you know, got like a, a, life term in prison or you know had his his uh he he was released or something and uh he said he he should have gotten the death penalty yes Uh, that's right so you know he's he's having to navigate his own sort of uh contradictions here about his beliefs in capital punishment with the actions and behaviors of his family uh and we also get a really really good scene out of these kind of revelations where waterston is learning just sort of the the depth of her psychosis and and the ways in which she's kind of masked herself within this performance of of like modern uh you know womanhood as a stay-at-home mom and he finds all of her books you know he he finds like helter skelter and all these clippings about like manson and various serial killers he finds like a, a photo of a bodybuilder signed and like xo oh, <laughs> which is really funny uh and there's even a uh cassette recording from oh, Ted John Bundy. Yeah. <laughs> yes. John Waters doing the voice of Ted Bundy. Um, so we we just kind of get to see all of these other men in Beverly's life whom she idolizes and sort of fetishizes in ways that are completely removed from the sort of relationship she has with Waterston. In all fairness, I mean, Turner is the dominating force at work here, but I think that is an important oversight, you know, to kind of touch upon because... Right. I mean, while it's kind of the the rich irony of it all, like you said, is while they're still operating in these, you know, societal like 
this is decidedly like assigned roles, like breadwinner, stay-at-home wife. He is just so, you know, he's powerless. He has no agency really in the grand scheme of things. She even like even you know when they have when they make love she's topping him if that's not already on the nose i mean i love it it's so on the nose and yet i feel like so many people would probably you know not connect all these dots but um and it's just she like you said she's using kind of like this farce of motherhood to operate and kind of just do her own thing and she's nobody's influencing her she's very much operating on her own accord and i think that's so fascinating and you know even with sam waterston he's the dentist obviously and even scotty's parents kind of bullying him into they bullied him into um making a last minute appointment Mm -hmm. so he is very he's very malleable he is just he's like butter and it's like that is so fascinating and i just you know we are not we don't really get i guess a lot of strong uh i mean i would say the guess the the most, you know, stereotypical masculine character is Scotty, who is just a mm-hmm. perved up teenager. Right. <laughs> yeah, watching, uh, you know, his his porn videos in his room under the blanket and uh, always with, like, a nude magazine for, like, even when he's, like, behind the wheel of a car, he's yeah. just, like, thumbing through, like, a Playboy or something. It's it's very It's bizarre. the greatest bit. It's it's great because you're, you're right. It's it's consistent. It's like it's always there just out of like frame. Uh, I also, you know, kind of like with Sam Waterston's character, you know, we, you mentioned he's a dentist. There's one scene in the movie which I find to be one of the most perverse because I uh, myself am, am terrible at sitting in a dental chair. Uh, oh, when, it makes two of us. <laughs> when he's drilling uh, the man's fillings and it's, you know, these like very extreme close-ups where he is just like going at it. The, the whir of the dentist drill is like really high in the sound mix. And this guy is, uh, you know, uh, fidgeting and kind of crying out because he's accusing Sam Watterson's character of deliberately hurting him and punishing him, uh, for the act of like forcing him to be there. Uh, very much a characteristic of of his wife, right? Someone who meets out this justice and and kills people right. at the slightest sort of inconvenience. Uh, but I do like that for a moment they kind of show his character and specifically his profession as kind of an extension of a societally acceptable way in which someone can kind of handle this this distribution of pain in a way. Um, and, and you know, Ooh. it's never clear whether or not he is actually hurting him on purpose it seems that that's very much not the case but at at the very at the very least that he's given societal power and the capacity to do so if he wanted to that's so interesting wow that's a that's a that's a fantastic point it's true right because like that you know this sort of an environment it's free of the influence of beverly where he's not stifled or you know like overpowered by her so right he very well could be you know kind of taking out his own frustrations um on the patient there a scotty's father but right like in many of these situations waters leaves it ambiguous which is just great i think that ambiguity is underrated i mean i think i love i love when you know directors leave it up to interpretation because honestly cinema is subjective i don't know just like waters understands like not only obviously is he a director he's a consumer he's a cineast he's gets the audience portion of it so that understanding i think is really it's 
plays a big role, I think, in why his movies, in particular Serial Mom, are as so effective as they are. Um, going even to the to the end um, when they get Suzanne Somers involved. Yes. Which is <laughs> such, yeah, like, talk about, right, the sort of Netflixication of uh, true crime right there. Yes, absolutely. Let's talk a little bit about that because, I, I mean, the, the ending here kind of makes good on a lot of uh, all of the, the points that, that Waters is up until that point kind of presenting a little bit more slyly, you know, sort of sort of tossing up and, and batting around a little bit. But at the very end here, we see uh, very objectively the ways in which Beverly's family uh, intends to capitalize on her string of murders and this brutality. Uh, and we also see the ways in which that extends outward to other members of the community and, and even the families of her victims. There's like that mm. really awesome scene where, uh, where Matthew Lillard is trying to get everybody involved to sign the releases so that they can do like the, the, the adaptation of this story. And he's confronted by uh, the brother of uh, Carl, I think is the name, like the sort of oh yeah, the, the kind of quasi boyfriend of Ricky Lake's uh, character, yes. who's kind of a you know sort of misogynist douchebag and you know not particularly interested in her and, and breaks her heart. Who who she kills with a fire poker uh, in the bathroom <laughs> at a flea market with the and, with the peeping tom in the background. Yes, really really good scene. Uh, and I also like you know John Waters has pointed out in that scene that uh, he was adamant about incorporating a scream king. And you get like this huge, like roided out macho guy in like a tight red T-shirt uh, doing that very famous Howie scream uh, when when he finds the dead body of Carl yeah, in the bathroom. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but uh, going back to it at, at the end, you know, Carl's brother confronts Matthew Lillard and Matthew Lillard says, hey, you know, like, have you signed the release yet? They're they're trying to make this into a production here. And we we want to know like like you you can get a part in it. They're talking about Suzanne Summers for my mom. Like we got to think about what actors would play your brother in this in this movie or this television series. Uh, and you understand that there is a commercial component to all of this. That there is this fascination with the violence, even as we socially are given a little bit of instruction to. Uh, to find it reprehensible, right? To to condemn it, but also we can't particularly look away at it, look away from it, rather. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think that before this all kind of comes to a head, and you know, the family members are either enabling her or just kind of turning a blind eye. But right, I think once they once the lucrative cash cow makes rears its head, everybody's on board because, you know, I think that in in and of itself is such a searing like condemnation of just capitalism it's like doesn't matter like how heinous you know the the you know the origins are like whatever the product is if it's gonna make you money sure i'll sell my soul to the devil i'll be rich like if i'm capitalizing off murder or you know it's really it's it trickles down to so many lesser but still terrible things and it's almost like too the way that they all approach it with such gusto and they're like, the shirt's like cereal mom shirts. Yes. Like, you know, it's not even like, they're not even having qualms about it. Like they, as soon as I saw the dollar sign, they were like, that's it. And that too, I feel like it's just, again, like the American suburban 
you're always trying to keep up the Joneses and that might be the ultimate, you know, extension of that to the point where it's like, all right, well, our mom is a serial killer. So you're going to beat that. Like what's the most outlandish thing? Like it's so outlandish that instead of it, you know, really ruining or affecting their lives, they choose to be willfully blind to the fact that obviously it's ruined and affected so many other lives and instead just reap, reap and sow their rewards. And I think like, damn, like, he does not sugarcoat things, John Waters, and I really respect that. Uh, one of my favorite gags in the entire film is the way that Matthew Lillard's character in the back third of the movie adopts like the revolutionary uh, sort of oh, uh, pastiche yeah. and has on like the kind of like army jacket and the beret. He looks like very like Bobby Seal in this. <laughs> That's right. It's just, it's very, very funny at the point when they're kind of, you know, like rallying to to free her and, you know, to have her story told and, and signing these petitions and you, Sam Waterston is reading the little pamphlet about, <laughs> you know, how, how to deal with capital punishment and, and why it's bad or whatever, you know, it's, it's very, very funny. And uh, his, his beret and jacket and like black turtleneck is, is a thing that I found myself laughing out loud at. Right. And I completely forgot about the element. I do think briefly for an ephemeral moment that he and Bertie, um, you know, they become like pacifists, Yeah, <laughs> you know, and for a brief moment. But like, again, like their convictions are skin deep because as soon as money is a prospect, it's like, oh, well, screw that. You know, there's just I think the whole film on so many levels just really captures and uh hypocrisy like yes brilliantly and in particular um you know beverly telling her kids oh you can't be watching those movies and then being a you know crime fanatic herself and there's something that's funny to me that you know just in the way that it's framed you know you see scotty and um and chip and birdie and they're having a nice like convivial hangout watching these horror movies whereas you know it's a very gr gruesome movie but it's like the stark opposite of um that that old lady who watches annie but doesn't rewind her tapes most innocent movie you could um pick probably and then like you said <laughs> sledgehammer quite literally with a with a leg of lamb Oh my God. Yeah. By the way, that woman, I think, is the biggest pervert in any John Waters movie. Like, just singing along to Annie, eating her disgusting white bread, like lamb and mint jelly sandwich, uh, and having her dog lick her, lick bare her feet. feet. Yeah. I was like, <laughs> very, yeah. It's just, and then again, like, you know, the way that she has this entitled sort of Karen attitude at the video shop. It's like she is another product of this greater whole here. And something else that, you know, I think just popped into my head that I wanted to touch upon was how it's very almost, you know, underhanded, but how Waters really kind of like commentates on, you know, how one can furtively and manipulatively, you know, weaponize sexuality, especially as a woman in Beverly and in um, Ricky Lake, too. Yes, totally. Uh, Kathleen Turner gets her basic instinct moment in this movie. Yeah. <laughs> You're you know? right. Like oh very deliberately God. weaponizing her sexuality in a moment with uh, 
someone who is a alleged but very you know kind of well-known pervert um, gets him to basically recant his entire story just by almost flashing her her nethers that's so fun you bring up the basic instinct thing because i do remember uh, earlier in the film um and of course i mean leave it to me to remember these infinitesimal details but um uh, they're looking at magazines and they pull up a Sharon Stone magazine with one of the letters missing, but they're like, oh, she's a babe. So I do have to wonder on some, you know, on some degree, to some degree, if that was an intentional mm. bit on Waters' part, because I'm sure he probably ate that up. You know, Verhoeven very much seems his ilk. Yes. Well, and that film, too, is, you know, about uh, a woman who is a serial killer who is weaponizing her sexuality in order to avoid suspicion and, you know, uses it to her advantage to lure in law enforcement and basically get off scot-free the more the more like i i ruminate on this movie the more things jump out at me it's just it's so ripe for the picking it's it, it flowers it's it's it uh, flowers it's, oh, it's opening up for us here uh, <laughs> on, on this topic of hypocrisy i think that you know the one of the greatest hypocrisies that that waters is concerned with here is one that we've already touched on a little bit with but the uh, sort of fascination with and and uh, the feelings of suburban America with regard to capital punishment with the death penalty. Mm-hmm. And uh, of course, you know, we do see uh, uh, the, these kind of key moments, right, of, of liberal hypocrisy where the, this family becomes very anti-death penalty, very much in favor of like pacifism and and abolitionism and all those kind of things as soon as it immediately affects them. Uh, but in the abstract, they are very much in support of it. And, you know, I think a, a big part of it here is kind of this, this conversation with Beverly's actions. You know, they, they sort of work in tandem that we realize that this family, this group of people, kind of suburban America that puts on this performance of social progressivism is very reactionary mm. and very conservative at its core and that they are fine with the violence so long as someone else is meeting it out, so long as someone else's hand is doing it. And uh, to me, I, I think it's like the ultimate kind of... Uh, crux of the, of the argument here and, and Waters' fascination with the death and the violence in this movie is that all of these people find this particular act of murder so abhorrent, yet they are all fundamentally in favor of this, this uh, equally violent, equally vicious act that has just been totally naturalized uh, based on whatever, social conventions. I mean, no notes there. I mean, that, that's <laughs> aptly put, I think. And it's just, yeah, it is very true. And I think also, you know, um, in that same vein, it's also like, you know, just the shoe fit, does it apply to me? It's almost like modifying one's beliefs and interests to, you know, solely benefit their own self-interest. And, you know, again, it's all it's all farce. And I think it is pretty the the way that you know waters kind of frames it around murders versus the death penalty and how both are very violent but you know one one is you know kind of sensationalized and like oh so terrible but it's like you know the death penalty is essentially doing that um there's a lot of hypocrisy there but i think it just also comes down to this performance which ties back into the you know keeping up with the joneses it's like everybody 
almost it's like they have to be the most uh i don't know law-abiding the most progressive the most you know like the the recycling and all that beverly Mm -hmm. is such a stickler for these little things and it's to me it's like i think a large part of why this behavior um you know persists is not so much because they believe that it's helpful or that they should be doing it it's more to keep up an appearance or to project this desired image of themselves so that people will look at them in a certain light. Absolutely. Uh, And I think that this is one of the sort of threads of the movie that I find the most fascinating, which is that, you know, it is satire. It is absurdist. But I think that there is an element of this that feels like the natural endpoint to this kind of mundane existence. I think that Waters is, you know, very effectively aiming at and, and and making a target of this particular kind of culture. And I think that when we see Beverly, one of the things that's sort of slyly there and also kind of just like deeply troubling about her is that she sees no alternative to it. You know, this is a, a thing that we get into pretty regularly on the show when we kind of talk about the 1990s, how it was this time of, you know, both the end of history uh, in which kind of like the exceptionalism of American capitalism seemed to be the prevailing world order, that neoliberalism was mm. going to kind of be the the, the end all be all of human evolution. Uh, and that within that kind of victory, there was this very unsettled, uh, rebellious sort of thing undergirding all of it you know people didn't uh didn't see a conclusion people didn't find happiness there they were seeing actually the ways in which uh kind of the social order and material comforts and and uh you know this this familiarity and and enjoyment of life was actually being kind of stripped away from them within those confines and Movies in the 90s start to challenge this a little bit later. Leave it to somebody, you know, this kind of outsider artist, this iconoclast like John Waters to get there in 1994 ahead of a lot of people starting to do it sort of at the back half of the decade. Be- Beverly can't find an out, right? And, and a lot of these movies can't. A lot of these movies can't find a, a direction. They can't find a, a material distinction from the capitalist order. Uh, so in this one, I, Waters is is arriving at that same conclusion and kind of saying, well, at the end of this is just murder. It's, you know, there isn't even social upheaval. There's just people going insane and killing their neighbors. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, the kind of the rise of neoliberalism and just kind of arriving at that point. And like I said, very much reminiscent of the 50s in a way, just like this very conventional, all-American, everything is sort of right in the world. I mean... We had like the Gulf War, but I mean, after that, it was a pretty steady decade in terms of things happening on our soil and our international politics. And so, yeah, I mean, I think those, unfortunately, those periods are when this sort of like delusional suburban behavior kind of starts to prosper and proliferate because, you know, there's really no other agenda that's distracting or detracting from that. So people kind of turn inward and it's just right. I just think with the serial mom, it's it's so fascinatingly captured in just the behaviors and the performances of the Sutphin family and that dynamic. And also, of course, the neighbors. I mean, it is 
the small like small town feel where everybody knows everyone's like business it's just very much to me is it's the perfect encapsulation of kind of just i don't know that that time period in a way and really i mean you know the the higher order of judgment whether it's the death penalty or whether it's you know someone getting run over with their car for chewing gum ostentatiously (laughs) uh it is that capitalist order, right? Like it is the final judge, is the final arbiter of all of these conventions. You know, we're we're all playing by these these rules. We're all so strung into this overwhelming societal order that we have to abide by that when you deviate from it, like there is nothing there but punishment. Yeah, you're right, because it's like right, this this system that is kind of asserted its dominance, right? And anything that's contrarian, whether it be something as heinous as murder or as harmless, you know, as, I don't know, going against the green in whatever capacity, I can't think of a specific example off the top of my head, right? There's not much acceptance. It's mostly punishment that lays in wait. Mrs. Hinkle, do you drink? No, I don't. So you were not drunk when you received those allegedly obscene phone calls? I certainly was not. Now, you mean to tell me that the day I came over to Mrs. Ackerman's, the day you claim you recognized my voice, you were not drinking? One beer with lunch is hardly drinking. So you do drink? Socially. I'll have a beer. So you admit you just lied? No, I don't, you bitch! Watch your mouth, Mrs. Hinkle. Did you see that? She just said fuck you to me! Let the record show I am merely standing here. Fuck you too, you son. I'm warning you, Mrs. Hinkle, one more obscenity and I'm going to charge you with contempt of court. Mrs. Hinkle, are you insane? No, I'm not, you motherfucker! Mrs. Hinkle, I find you guilty of contempt and I sentence you to a thousand dollar fine and five days in jail. This film also uh, presages a very important cultural event in 1994 and early 1995 that feels like it was kind of uh, anticipating, which is the O.J. Simpson murder trial. Oh, my God. Yeah. I I found it very fitting. You know, this this movie was released, I think, in May, uh, April of, of 1994. And so. yeah. uh, and the, the O.J. Simpson trial well, the, the pursuit, first and foremost, his apprehension, and then, of course, the trial began, I think, just in late June, so not not many months removed from the release of this film. And we saw firsthand a lot of the things that Waters was satirizing, a lot of the things that he was kind of, kind of cartoonishly evoking here in a way that we probably thought at the time was a little bit over the top, uh, became normalcy and became the reality of the way in which we engaged with this really heinous act, this murder I don't I don't know that I necessarily have a, a, a thread to pull here beyond just like, holy shit, isn't that a fun coincidence? I didn't even think about that, but you're right. I just think right, it is it is very kind of uh hauntingly prescient in the way that, you know, even just I mean, obviously courtroom scenes have existed in cinema for a long time, but the way like a satirical courtroom scene in regards to true crime, right? That specificity. And then, you know, you fast forward to the um, OJ case. And I mean, my parents were watching that like glued to their TVs. 
fascinated. It's like this grotesque fascination that, you know, in a way I think is inherent to being a human being, but also should not have been normalized in the way that it has been, um, you know, to the point where we are today where people will freely spread and share like crime scene photos that really it's just no business being shared. It's disrespectful. It's, and it's like this desensitization, I think is like the big thing is like what we're kind of getting at here. Right. Like, and I think by, you know, making adaptations and, you know, these sort of serial series, you know, of, um, murderers. I mean, I think, believe Brian Murphy said he wants to like make a new season with a new murderer for the whole Dahmer things. It was so successful. It's like, I mean, it raises so many moral and ethical issues. One being like, why are we allotting money and, you know, attention to this in this particular way that is very much exploitative, but not, (laughs) not in the ironic way that, you know, water's intense with, um, the, you know, serial mom. It's like, if anything, it's like, this is just completely detrimental and deleterious. And I mean, it's just, yeah, it's, it's kind of, it's hard to wrap, wrap my head around to be quite honest. And I think, you know, one of the strengths of the movie that we've already kind of touched on is that Waters doesn't take it upon himself to try to pathologize Beverly in any way. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a lot left to sort of the imagination and to your own interpretation as to how, as we've already said, much of this is is a performance and much of this is, you know, just her playing by the rules which have been inscribed and instilled in her since her birth. Uh, And I, I think that the more we try to do that with these killers, the more that we try to kind of both sensationalize, but also try to ground it in some sort of like understanding, some sort of conceptualization mm. of what were they thinking? Who are they as people? Like, what are the what are the conditions that brought them to murder? Uh, yeah, for, for me, I, I think that 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 practice has been deleterious <laughs> to our our yeah. kind of perception of of criminality and specifically of murder and and the way that it functions and and where it comes from. You know, like obviously there are you know psychological and and material conditions that lead people to crime that lead people to commit, you know, acts. But, uh, there's a, there's a sort of kind of fetishization and fascination there in things like that Dahmer series. And, and, you know, just in, in the sort of nature of true crime in general, that feels very reactionary. You know, there's always sort of this underlying kind of tone of, how can we arm ourselves with the right kind of knowledge and abide by the right social functions in order so that we will never be murdered ourselves so that we will never be uh, a a victim or a perpetrator. And that to me is just a, a inherently like reactionary conservative sort of foundation. And I I think that it's kind of awful. It is. I completely agree. I think it's futile too, because like there's, no, I mean, there's really no way to really, like, prevent... I mean, every case is so different and individual and beyond, like, the usual, you know, just keep your wits about you and beyond the stuff, the basics that we're taught. I mean, I don't... I think it's pretty pointless, too, but what I think is, you know, pretty insidious, but 
terribly like darkly funny in the vein of waters if you will is that what are um murphy and netflix doing if not what you know waters was kind of hypothesizing in serial mom capitalizing off of this violence and i know very often you'll see or i'll see y'all come across like you know a tiktok or an instagram um where somebody um who is you know related to a victim of one of these killers has gone on the record and tried to reach out and say hey like this is like you know infringing upon my privacy and i don't want like my personal life exploited only to have those you know that all those supplications ignored um again in favor of money as opposed to moral decency and i also think there's great danger too and even something as harmless i'm sure you've seen um you know the Dahmer uh memes where people take a green screen on the tv where he's putting in the video cassette and instead of whatever he's showing the guy, they'll put in, like, me forcing my friends to watch Serial Mom, right? That's a great example. And, like, yeah, at first, you know, even I was like, oh, that's kind of funny. But I think it's important to kind of pause and reflect and consider, like, the greater implications of that. Like, that we're using this scene that, you know, is kind of, like, prefacing a murder, Mm-hmm. That actually happened, maybe not in the same terms as depicted in the series, and we're just passing it around as this loose social currency again, kind of contributing to this greater um, desensitization to crime in a way that like desensitizes us from the realities of it. Because um, I think for so many people, if you haven't experienced it, it's easy to look the other way and buy into, like you said, the entertainment portion of it. So the more you do that, the more you feel it's, you know, so out of reach and thus, you know, not in your orbit or your realm. And that's dangerous. That's a terrible, dangerous and very um, just the lack of empathy there and that kind of thinking, like how it kind of contributes to that. It's very galling. This movie, too, also, I think, really anticipates something else that, that you kind of touched upon, which is the the weaponization of sexuality within the the auspices of of the courtroom setting uh you know obviously this didn't really happen as much with oj granted he was already a celebrity in his own right and and you know became a bigger one uh because of this trial but i think specifically of like high profile cases of the of the aughts as well like the the casey anthony's or the jody arias oh yes um amanda knox even amanda knox was the one that came right to mind yep yeah, these very high-profile cases that are, you know, with with a murder at the center of them and a woman specifically as the defendant, and in all three of those cases, like a conventionally attractive, like good-looking woman, uh, and the ways in which that became the headline, the way that there was this sort of uh, fetish object at the center of it, and the ways in which it removed us, I think, and and kind of calloused us to the the real kind of thing that happened to, to the crime that, right. happened, you know, to, to the, to the brutality of, of the instances. And please don't think that I'm trying to say, you know, that all three of these women are, are like, you know, guilty or whatever. I, I, I am not here to, to dole I'm out my own justice all, yeah. or to, to you know, my, <laughs> my own sort of verdict here. Uh, they, they have been found guilty or innocent in the eyes of the court. I, I have no real feelings on that. But my point is just during the circumstances of the trial before that was decided, a big part of these conversations became about like 
wanting to fuck these women instead of like yep. the thing that they were accused of doing. And uh, that too, I find just like deeply insidious and also, again, an incredibly prescient element of, of Waters critique. Oh, yeah. No, that's exactly. Yeah, I think they're it's, you know, if anything, all these, you know, the the capitalization on these crimes, it's interesting, very seldom often has to do with the nature of the crime itself. I mean, sometimes it does. It gets into the nitty gritty, but oftentimes it's the, you know, everyone but the victim, you know, the villains, the perpetrators, like you said, and especially when you add in that, you know, that dynamic of female sexuality. Um, and I think, you know, you see it and what's, you know, even more disturbing and distressing, in my opinion, is people have find an increased attraction to these women because of what their actions, like because of what yes. they did. <laughs> and that it's like, really, it's this perpetual cycle. We're seeing that waters creates a microcosm of within serial mom that just kind of metaphysically plays and replays itself in our everyday lives as these things just happen and it's like people, you know, we don't, we don't learn, um, we being obviously the greater, the whole of humanity. Mm -hmm. Um, and what do you, you know, like when it, what do you do about that? Other than, you know, try to be mindful of what you consume and what you create. I mean, it's, it's a very, it's a very choppy terrain, I think to navigate. And it is, you know, you know, I think it elevates, you know, the gravity of Serial Mom, like not only as like a comedic piece, because right. I mean, the comedy of it, I think, is principally within the suburban like satirization. That's funny. I mean, you see, yes. you know, these middle aged petty women like, you know, Beverly is like establishing her whole, you know, rivalry with Dottie over a parking spot. <laughs> it's hilarious. At a Joanne fabric of all places. At a Joanne fabrics. And I think he strikes that good balance because it's not the crime scenes that are or the crime element that's really particularly funny. And again, he doesn't let anyone get away with it, right? Because Beverly obviously is Beverly has no interest in capitalizing on what she's doing. I mean, she's just is like herself. She's in her own little world, right? She's like she's like with the birds, hooey, hooey. <laughs> but because of that, because she doesn't have the capitalistic interest in mind, she kind of sabotages their plans commits one last murder mm -hmm. and it's gonna go to, to prison i mean maybe the movie will still get made but based on the look on suzanne summer's face it didn't look like she wanted any involvement and so beverly doesn't win with her emancipation and the family probably you know it's implied that things aren't going to be all sun and roses because i think again americans love a happy ending if they had made if they had gone through and made this you know, documentary of within the universe of Serial Mom um, and said, oh, and she was found innocent. People were like, oh, yay. But now it's like, you know, and maybe, you know, that's that is a change since then. Maybe now people do want to see that, oh, she loses it. She does. But I think at that point in time, you know, it was a, just a different, different sort of reaction. Yeah, you bring up a, a really good point there that at the end, you know, she is acquitted, uh, but it, the film very much kind of posits that the murders aren't going to stop and none of these people's intentions with ways in which to capitalize on this particular uh, story are going to come to fruition in any way whatsoever. 
Uh, and I think that that's important, right? I think that that maybe is, you know, Waters finally getting, you know, one last little play in, one opportunity to kind of, uh, you know, throw his full convictions behind the story and say, like, you are not going to profit off of this. You're not going to get what you want. These characters are going to uh, have to acquiesce to the reality of what's happening around mm-hmm. them at some point. And face the consequences, right? Kind of. Especially yeah. for Beverly, obviously, but, you know, kind of, you know, stop living in this sort of liminal fantasy where, oh, you know, we're going to be rich. And it's like you're so concerned with looking into the future and what could be on something that is so unstable and just honestly insane that you lose sight of the present and you just lose your insight and you lose your approach and you lose your logic and so what are you left with your kind of blind side it's like pulling out the rug from under your feet i think it is very important very telling that he does end it on that note like he's not it's not all happy happy forever for beverly and her crime sprees you know and i think that's a thing that a lot of people again um going back you know to film lexicon a lot of people will misunderstand about waters they think and true irony, again, that he's making these this movie that is endorsing violence and it's like celebrating it. It's like you you were the kind of person who was driving him to make these movies because you just are missing the point. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like <laughs> when people yeah. are like, oh, like I can't watch Serial Mom. It's so gory. I believe my own mother actually said that. And it's like, all right, like I respect it, but it's like there are sometimes I think things, you know, are worth, you know, deliberating over more, you know, like just other than dismissing it as a bloody slasher, you know, it's like, what is he trying to say? I think that's such an important part of examining this is that it can feel very over the top, but these elements and, and you know, I, I think the way that we're able to see it, the ways in which Waters is very deliberate about the statement he's making show that there is a much more uh, kind of controlled hand at work here. You know, he's not mm-hmm. just throwing things at a wall and seeing what sticks. He, he's actually creating this very absurd, very like, you know, over the top environment in which to present his themes in which to make his conclusions and he is making conclusions it's not just begging the question and and messily kind of having us argue and debate the particular uh, you know components and aspects of this it it seems very clear what side of the fence he is falling on by the end of the movie right and i think just because of who he is and you know his reputation that precedes him people again people like to see what they see and people like to jump to conclusions and if that's also not something that's contained within the movie as well, you know, appearances, deception, just this will, again, this willful blindness and sort of only seeing what you want to believe. And I think to a degree, you know, Sam Waterston falls into that category where, you know, I think eventually he's like, yeah, she's doing all this, but even still it's like, oh, you know, it's always like this um, modicum of doubt or some excuse. It's, avoiding responsibility mm-hmm. at all costs and that's one thing that intentionally and specifically waters does not do in his message yes he is the opposite of sam Waters' yeah character it's so in this it's movie it's so and that's the thing it's just so that's why i love about it so much i mean it's just it's genius like i 
I can't even conceive of how, you know, he had, he took all these moving parts and like you said, it's not like he was throwing things at the wall. I mean, these are very carefully thought out and like schemed out pieces um, that he put together. And it's just, it's seamless. It's so seamless and so smooth. And honestly, it's the filmmakers like Waters that make me stop mid thought and think, God, I love film and I love what I do because it's just who else is is and how else can you disseminate a message on that degree and that with that complexity in such a way that can be so controversial even though its message ultimately is not controversial. It's this great paradox um, that he operates within and I just think it's so fascinating and not only obviously can you gain revelations from the film it's interesting to you know see its greater impact and how people respond to it and what people think of it and their judgments and all that is just born obviously of this one movie but as we you know talked about has kind of um snowballed into just actual true the actual true crime obsession in in the media and I mean, he's ahead of his time, that's for sure. Yeah, and he remains ahead of his time, I think. It, he's a master craftsman. And s- spending time here thinking about it and talking about this work, I think, has made me appreciate just how uh, how much there is here, how many threads there are to pull, and how effective he is in such a concise time frame, too, at a, a very tight, like, it is 89 tight. minutes, I think, is when the credits start rolling. yeah. And he, and like you said, it's no trimmings. He just gets it all in there. Like, it's like, and those are my favorite kinds of movies when every scene, every second has intention behind it. Because, you know, another tangent for another day, but I'm really personally just not a fan of meandering movies that just are atmospheric in the vein of Antonioni. Just (laughs) want to like, you know, contemplate on this beautiful vista. And it's like, I understand it's for some people it's great. But no, I'm like, give me the message and do it cleverly, do it concisely. And Waters just hits all the boxes. He checks all the boxes. I think we, we both owe it to him to, to dive deeper into his filmography now. Yeah. I was going to say, have you, um, by chance, have you seen uh, Cecil B. Demented? I have not seen Cecil B. Demented. Okay. I, I'm going to, to leave you with that and say that that is one you must see, um, especially as a cinephile, it's brilliant, and in my opinion, also listeners, if you haven't watched it, this is this is an endorsement for you as well. Um, Melanie Griffith, who I'm usually very lukewarm on, is does a great job in this role. <laughs> and it's just you know you have um, Maggie Maggie Gyllenhaal's in it, and someone else, one of his other regulars comes back, but it's it's just it's great. Um, can't recommend it enough. And it's also it's 99, I believe, so it does fit the bill of 90s movies okay well then there you go uh full endorsement and co-sign from hit factory pod you have to watch cecil be demented uh it is mandatory viewing before the next time you play a hit factory episode uh not not really if you want to come and listen to us again before you have time to see the movie please by all means do so but uh watch it in haste run don't walk we'll do the same on our end of things um with that, I think just like a couple of stray observations I have about this movie. We haven't yet talked. I mean, we've talked about the true crime element, but we haven't talked about the framing device of the film. 
uh, which starts with a fictionalized sort of version of this, you know, the the, the names and, and places have been changed in order to protect the innocent kind of situation. Oh, yeah. And uh-huh. there's, also, there's also like a really funny uh, gag that runs throughout that's just these like arbitrary timestamps on various yes the, the timestamps as yeah. if to like make it kind of feel like it's a like it's an incident report or like a timeline of events <laughs> that's been kind of stitched together but they're but they're completely superfluous and you know it'll be like 1027 and then they'll cut to a different scene and it's 1033 that for, for no ostensible reason it's just it's just there to try to add this kind of faux veneer of of verisimilitude to it all oh that's perfectly put yeah i completely i remember the timestamps. i forgot about the disclaimer in the beginning but right yeah i mean not only is it sort of mocking you know obviously like true crime things but also just i don't know like in any old movie it's like the characters in this if there's any similarities purely coincidental it's like he's taking that and elevating it to a new level right to play With- off that and the crime which is brilliant it's genius very very funny i feel like i feel like faye dunaway the amount of times i've said brilliant jesus christ <laughs> it's like gotta find a new adjective there <laughs> no you can continue to use it for someone like john waters we will uh will allow it on on hit okay. factory pod uh another just uh, thing that i love about this uh the camel lips the band that's playing at oh my god uh, what, the, the, I can't remember the name of the club. It's Hammerjacks or something like that. Yeah, some small dive. Yeah, uh, but but they're called the Camel Lips, and all of the performers have on like flesh-colored spandex with like plush labias that look like they're all rocking camel toes. Uh, and that's that's the Riot Girl band uh, L Seven, which I, I had to look up and, and was kind of delighted to find out. Are you familiar with L Seven? I'm not actually. Okay. I didn't well, realize then, it was a real band. They are a real band. They're called L7. They were pretty popular in the 90s. Uh, that is my homework for you then. I will watch Cecil Be Demented. You will listen to L7. Hell yeah. <laughs> I'm down. I mean, I'm always down to explore new music and like that's that's fascinating. Like adds more, you know, to the subtext of it all and of course, my here's my brain working overtime and thinking even back to the empowered women sexuality thing when you know scotty is running on there trying to get them to help and they're the ones who dump like the alcohol on him so he really burst into the flames i mean it's like it's just it's it's this female empowerment and it's kind of a nice retribution when you think about it for his whole character how he's just you know whether again it be intentional or not objectifying women with this pornography mm-hmm. and it's like you get to see this other side of womanhood that's not through this inherently, you know, fetishistic male gaze and they're whooping his ass. And I think they even bring Beverly on stage. I mean, they're just like, hell yeah. You know, it's just interesting. There's so many different, like little things, little nuances um, that contribute to the greater whole that are, I mean, I'm sure if I watched it again, um, I did watch it a few days ago in preparation I would find something new. I mean, it's just endless. It's great. It's like a, and that's what I love about film too. I mean, I feel like I always take away something new with every viewing. It's like a treasure hunt. (laughs) It is like a treasure hunt. And I feel like there's been so many uh, additional elements of this movie, so many additional textures and ripples in this story. Uh, So Nora McIntyre, yes. Thank you again so very much for coming on and discussing Serial Mom with me. Well, thank you for having me, Aaron. It's been a delight and a pleasure. Where can uh, people find you and your work, Nora? 
Oh, yeah. Um, so basically, I've tried to kind of cohesively put everything under my moniker. It's Notoriously Nora, one word. That's my ad on Twitter. I believe it is also my um, website, www.notoriouslynora, my WordPress, my Instagram. So you type in Notoriously Nora, there's probably a pretty good chance you'll find me. Letterbox too. Fantastic. We will make sure to uh, link to all of that so people can find you, follow along, and uh, check out your work. From our end of things, you can follow along with us at Hit Factory Pod. Uh, you can also subscribe to us for bonus content, bi-weekly uh, episodes there, the full Hit Factory experience, only on patreon.com slash hitfactorypod. Tell your friends we could use a few more of you. Uh, shout out to our overlords. Their names are Linda and Jesse K. And uh, we will catch you all the next time. See ya. See ya.